Welcome to the 32nd installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm your host, Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. 2007 marks 10 years since a remarkable initiative called the Monitoring Team wrapped up its official duties. A unique collaboration of farmers, university researchers, natural resource agency personnel, and nonprofit staff, the monitoring team was coordinated by the Land Stewardship Project and the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture. By the time it concluded its work in 1997, the team had become a model for how natural resource practitioners and farmers can work together to create environmental benefits on farms. In addition, the 26 members created a set of sustainability indicators and distilled them down into a field resource called the Monitoring Toolbox. The toolbox is now being used throughout North America and around the world, and the team's work is even influencing agricultural policy. As government conservation personnel look for ways to measure the impact sustainable agriculture is having on the land and water, the monitoring team and their toolbox serves as an important model. The team's work is also influencing scientific research involving natural resources and agricultural practices, particularly through such initiatives as the Multiple Benefits of Agriculture Project. Finally, the toolbox is being used in the training of a new generation of beginning farmers in Minnesota and other states through LSP's Farm Beginnings course. On a blustery spring day recently, two of the original monitoring team members, Larry Gates and Tex Hawkins, helped train Farm Beginnings instructors from Illinois, Nebraska, and North Dakota. Gates is a watershed coordinator for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, and Hawkins is a biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The training took place on the grass-based dairy farm of Dave and Florence Menar, who were also members of the monitoring team. After the training, Gates and Hawkins shared some of their thoughts on the genesis of the monitoring team and what its long-lasting impacts have been. Yeah, I can't remember the dates, you know, but it was maybe 15 years ago. I and Tex and I were working with a lot of different farmers in southeastern Minnesota in our capacities as private lands management coordinators, watershed coordinators, or at least some people from our agencies that were given the opportunity to be able to get out there and work in collaborative settings on agricultural land with uh, producers. We knew a lot of people associated with land stewardship projects, a lot of farmers that were adventurous, trying out some different kinds of farming practices, all in the realm of sustainability, you know, trying to be able to do something better in terms of the profitability or quality of life for the land, pass on something, you know, in a lot better shape. And we were attracted to working in this arena because it was out of these kinds of places that we were seeing some real creative work being done in terms of grazing, grazing management, getting more permanent vegetative cover on the land, helping for things that we were interested in, seeing improved water quality, improved uh, terrestrial and aquatic habitat. At about that time, there was a group of uh, farmers that had taken holistic resource management. They were changing a lot of their farming enterprises on the basis of what it is that they'd learned in that coursework and really banking on diversity being very, very important. Diversity in terms of soil health, soil quality, water quality, water cycling, nutrients cycling and management on their properties, terrestrial and aquatic habitat, and asking the question of themselves, what is that going to look like when we arrive there? Is it going to be a, a process? Is it going to be a continuum? Or is there going to be some some real clear signals, you know, that we've really done done things well, or we've, we've made some, some major improvements? 
So Tex and I had been working with some of these people, and they'd approached us and said, you know, are there some questions that, that we're missing here? Are there some ways to be able to look at this that we're not thinking about? Are there some areas of research and investigation that we should embark upon to help us to be able to answer these questions? It's fun for Tex and I to be able to engage in that conversation, and as we got those farmers together and we started running these questions around iteratively about what that would start to look like, what it is we maybe should be measuring on some of these farms as they make some of these uh, farming changes, and a lot of them, a lot of the farmers were going into more extensive grazing, more rotational grazing kinds of systems, introducing more permanent vegetative uh, cover in their farming systems, more closely emulating uh, natural processes, ecosystem uh, processes in their farming. We looked at a lot of those elements that helped to be able to integrate an understanding about what it is that was happening on the farm. Birds came up, frogs, toads, soil health, uh, vegetation, looking at it in a variety of ways, and the habitat that it provides, uh, it's physiologically and the nutrition that it provides for the animals that they're raising on, on those lands, and all of this, this stuff. Eventually we incorporated elements of quality of life, economic benefits, herd health, and, and so on. And it became a very fertile arena in which to be able to add additional people from state and federal resource agencies, uh, local, uh, other nonprofits, and the universities. Finding people in those places that were similarly interested in systems level management and what kind of changes could be adopted on farms to be able to get us better water quality, sequester carbon, more terrestrial and aquatic, improved terrestrial and aquatic habitat, and improve farm profitability and, and, and some more local economies. So really, I think it was because of our early interactions with some of those farmers and Tex and I had some credibility with them that they felt comfortable coming to us and asking those questions and then checking out our networks and casting the net widely. We've we found there were a lot of interested people in those other places that we mentioned that were willing to come help entertain the questions. So as we developed those with everybody in the room, there were areas of, of investigation that developed out of which we'd hoped to be able to drive some, not simple, but some observable kinds of to tools, recognizable ways to answer those fundamental questions that the farmers had first asked when we're improving things, what is it that we're going to start to recognize? What is it we're going to start to see? You talked about all the different monitoring uh, indices that you looked at, but one of the ones that seems to have, I guess, uh, caught the attention early on and got some farmers excited and, and they were even having a little bit of fun with was the birding part of it. Tex, can you talk a little bit about that and, and how that kind of evolved? And it, I think it was a little bit surprising how popular that became with some of the farmers. Well, Brian, as you know, the Mississippi Flyway is one of the great migration corridors connecting the North and South American continents. It's a it's a, an incredible resource that we have right here on our doorsteps. And the Upper Mist Refuge is part of that migration corridor and dispersal system where they go up the, the tributary streams and work their way into nesting areas as far away as Canada and come through this area, and some of them stay in nest. So it's natural. The farms are, are breeding areas for migratory birds, just like the refuge is. As a matter of fact, there's a lot more breeding bird activity uh, off the refuge than there is on. So the private lands are extremely important. 
the river itself is a fishery migration route where fish move up and down the river and out into the tributaries and it's kind of a, a network system as well and the driftless area which is the area that right around the river is kind of a buffer zone and it's also very high in biological diversity it's a rich area and it's uh, also very important from a water quality standpoint the biggest threat to the refuge right now is sedimentation coming up eroding lands some of its urban most of its uh, rural uh, farmland and the attempts that were being made to coordinate and uh, implement uh, programs with farmers were complemented by the idea of monitoring do a, doing a more adequate job of monitoring so the the monitoring uh, project was a natural complement to watershed partnerships and basin alliances and this big driftless area initiative that's growing up in in the area so from the beginning we saw it as a as a real potential for a lot more involvement in in conservation programs that could benefit waterfowl and, and uh, migratory songbirds in particular Maybe talk a little bit about. Uh, I know talk when I talk to some of the farmers about it. Uh, I know Art Tiki in particular. He liked the birding aspect of it because something could integrate with his chore time. And but this wasn't somebody who came from a birding. Uh, he wasn't exactly a bird nerd when he started out on it. Not at all. Uh, Larry tells the story of Art. It's first one of the first meetings when Art. Uh, said, well, as far as I'm concerned, uh, this is the only bird I know. He wraps, he wraps his finger on the table and he says, a woodpecker. Yeah, and so it, not long afterward, Art was kind of leading the discussion about birds and he became such an enthusiast that he, he uh, initiated a bluebird box uh, program on his farm and he's raising hundreds of young bluebirds now. And um, he's just very much a tune, and Jean especially, I'd, I'd, I'd credit Jean even more with her enthusiasm for the backyard birding aspects right around the farmstead. She's uh, got feeders up and she's keeping an eye on things and keeping a list and when there's something unusual I'll hear from Art Jean uh, that, that there's something in the area they want me to re- tell them you know what my thoughts are on, on the bird situation there. So it's exciting to see people pick up on the, the bird community and, uh, and, and also do things to to enhance it. Larry, you had talked a little bit earlier about um, this idea of, as both of you guys are natural resource professionals with, with vast backgrounds in this area. Um, I think a lot of people think of uh, DNR and Fish and Wildlife Service people as maybe working uh, in their wilderness areas or their wildlife refuges in, in, on public lands, but this is a whole new area on private lands. Yeah, I mean, most of them are sitting out here in the Menar farm, and around us is agricultural land. It's all privately owned. Sand Creek flows through here in the background. The decisions that are made on all these farms affect the water quality of Sand Creek in profound ways. It's a tributary to the Minnesota River. And Tex and I, in our careers, you know, have had the opportunity to be able to work with private lands management stuff. There's a variety of ways that you can do it, and you can try to affect programs, you know, pen stroke legislation and have a program extensively applied across the landscape, but there's other ways in which to do it, and one that's very attractive to us is to try to be able to work with farmers, you know, that are doing something, you know, very creative outside of the box, and 
that's what was happening with all of these farmers. They weren't subscribing to programs or a cookie-cutter way in which to be able to do a business, but they were looking at their farms as part of a, a landscape, one that had existed, exist, uh, was here for quite a long period of time, and trying to be able to replicate or use, use nature as the fundamental pieces for being able to, to farm again. So they were concerned about water and water quality. We apply that to Sand Creek or to some of the trout streams in southeastern Minnesota, Let's talk about the trout streams down there. You get into a watershed, and uh, the way that we're going to improve trout populations vastly in the southeast is to try to be able to keep more of that water on the land. You know, that begins with better tillage kinds of practices, more permanent vegetative cover and grazing systems, better grazing systems. And if that can be applied extensively across that landscape on the private lands, which constitute about 95% of the land down there in the southeast, we're going to see better fish populations over time. Tex talked about the Mississippi River system. We've got huge problems associated with sedimentation in the backwaters down there and poor water quality as a consequence of it. Uh, these are just tremendous systemic effects all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, you know, from being able to do better farming here in the upper Midwest. So we think, you know, this, this arena is a creative place in which better programs, better ways of being able to do business uh, can occur. I'm interested in this area where what is good for a farm or good for a farmer as far as their bottom line quality of life intersects with what's good for the land. Playing that uh, land health plays a, a, a big role in creativity itself. The The area that we're in is fairly diversified. The, the farmers in this area are, even though they may not be able to identify every bird on their farms or have a real in-depth knowledge of, of certain elements, uh, are very aware of what's going on from the standpoint of the, the, the natural aspects of the farm and what's, and they monitor it unconsciously and continuously. It's just that there is not a real formal aspect to it. So this creativity that grows out of the land itself, I think, is something that we, we've seen. And the, the willingness, these are uh, adapter, or adopters and adapters and people who are fairly quick to try a new idea, see how it works, and and uh, based on, on their experience, uh, either you know move on with the same practice or modify it or whatever, do whatever is necessary. But I think that creativity is a function of landscape health. I'll try to illustrate that with an, a bit of an example. And Texas reminded me of we're dealing we were dealing with a lot of grazers. And we're sitting here in the Menar farm, and he's probably got forty paddocks. And we asked the farmers. Tex Tex is a good bird guy, and he knows you know that these grassland nesting birds were in decline. We were providing some of that habitat with the pastures, you know, in the rotations, but we wondered if there was a way in which to be able to improve that by doing some extended rests on paddocks, take some out of production for an extended period of time, maybe during critical bird nesting period, or take them out the fall before, grow a lot of thatch there so it's an attractive area for places, birds to be able to nest, fledge young. These grazers warmed right up to the idea. They were interested in trying it, we tried it here on the Menar farm. As I recall, we were able to see quite a few fledged grassland nesting birds around that paddock that had been rested and taken out of production. It, you know, it wasn't being used for grazing for an extended period of time. But then that following year, Dave noted that that area greened up fast. We don't know if physiologically there was a lot of stored root energy there, you know, but he saw it. He was able to graze that. So we started talking about the opportunity that might exist to be able to incorporate this into grazing management systems and move those rotations around. 
now as a consequence of it you can have plants move to maturity you can have seed production you can have some self-seeding back in there you can develop some extensive thatch you improve soil quality a little bit more it becomes an area for small mammals to be able to use uh, and it was and it can be incorporated in these grazing management systems that probably wouldn't have happened in a research kind of a setting but that we were able to have all of these people around the table asking this kind of question and do it iteratively everybody warmed up to the idea we had a practical places in which to be able to do it immediately and we were able to take a look at it on several farms so we had several trials several replicates of that practice and a lot of people made similar kinds of observations it was it's just so punchy it's just so dynamic it's 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 just a great great fun setting if we were trying to do that in a programmatic way to try to design it as a research piece see that it was justified and, and try to determine what kind of compensation we're going to have to offer somebody to be able to do it and then administer that program uh, just it would topple under the weight of, of the bureaucracy but here in this kind of a setting it was agile and adaptive enough did you have some well I, I would just say that that's the essence of grassroots uh, from the bottom up type of bubbling up of, of that uh, creativity and innovation and that's what seems to be missing from a lot of the big national scope programs that are kind of they say cookie cutter and I think it's a pretty good description was this just a, I mean the monitoring project itself is I guess been officially wrapped up for about 10 years now uh, was this just kind of a flash in the pan or are we seeing uh, something uh, are we seeing it having impacts today uh, both uh, on the farms, policy-wise, I mean, one of the I guess one of the impacts we are seeing is uh, the reason we're here today is because monitoring is being taught to some people in uh, Illinois and Nebraska who are doing farm beginnings trainings, which is monitoring has become a real big part of farm beginnings. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we continued a lot of this this work, and Tex and I continued to work with a lot of these people, as did a lot of our. Uh, colleagues and other people that we've introduced uh, to operate in this way. We completed the multiple benefits of agriculture project, you know, which looked at other kinds of ecosystem services provided by farms and, and attaching some value to that. The results of which were taken to Washington, you know, and uh, to use in behalf of uh, support of the conservation security program. Uh, we've got five grazing uh, specialists in the state of Minnesota now where we used to just have one. There's a lot of interest in grass-based uh, farming management systems, more discussion about permaculture, all of which is we were talking about, you know, 15, 20 years ago and taking a look at. I think typical of project work that's kind of on the front end of where most people are to see its adaption, you know, extensively, 10, 15 years after, you know, the first adopters have, have, have done it. So I think it continues to be used a lot. Your reference, Brian, you know, to the fact that we're sitting here with representatives from three different states, you know, in Farm Beginnings programs, and the swirl of discussions which are taking place about local foods, carbon sequestration, climate change, all of which farming has an opportunity to be able to help help with and can if, if practiced differently. Uh, yeah, I, th I think it's I think it's opportunities at this time with local food, local economies is is enormous. Yeah, I, I think with the greening of the landscape that we're seeing in some areas, uh, there 
hopefully is also going to be a greening in policy and I think it's happening but rather slowly and sporadically and I think if there's not too much intervention to prevent it from happening there's going to be um, incentives for ecosystem service payments and other uh, vehicles for for rewarding farmers to do more um, beneficial from a conservation standpoint beneficial practices and 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 incorporate that into their whole production system so it's an integrated system and not just a piecemeal effort you know one of the things I think it's exciting about when you bring together uh, a diverse group of people is some uh, the fix isn't in that you can have results that you maybe didn't predict and I think one of the specific examples I think of with the monitoring team was in the environmental community anyway the the conventional wisdom was you always 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 keep cattle off of stream banks and I know we saw one of the the uh, team members Ralph Lentz uh, had kind of been arguing a little bit of the opposite uh, for years and it was through the monitoring team that maybe uh, some minds were able to be changed on that whole idea. I think, Larry, you worked with Ralph quite a bit on that, maybe. Yeah, Ralph, Ralph had been doing that on his farm for quite a few years, and he'd fenced off an area, and then he had another area that he'd grazed, and the differences that he was observing between those two areas were profound. The area that he'd fenced off was wooded, uh, very little vegetation growing on the the ground and the stream was wide and stream banks were eroded the area that it had been grazing in his rotation looked pretty darn good and he called me up and uh, said he'd like me to come out and look at it I did and, and we talked about it and told him we'd made similar observations and we just talked about the land and how it is that animals used to use it and what kind of disturbance regimes there were there and what might be necessary in order to be able to maintain better uh, stream conditions, you know, by managing for different uh, vegetative cover adjacent to the stream. We started doing it, looking at it, talking to other farmers, uh, did some investigations on his place, some of the other farms that started to participate in the biomonitoring project, and uh, the results of which have been extensively reported and researched uh, by several different graduate students. And it's interesting now, when Tex and I go into meetings in southeastern Minnesota and watershed settings and Geez, everybody there in the soil and water conservation districts, NRCS, you know, are talking about the importance of limited grazing adjacent to streams to maintain grasses and forbs along the stream banks and more open savanna kinds of settings, you know, instead of extensive wooded settings where it's that was not the original vegetative uh, uh, cover on those streams. And because we've seen and documented the benefits that occur, can occur to good controlled managed grazing and it's through the eyes of, of the manager that it uh, landowner that it, it needs to be done uh, there's, there's still some abuses of it of course and you can see those as you drive through the land today but where a person's doing a good job uh, it's it's a wonderful way to be able to manage streams <laughs> For more on the monitoring team's work and influence, see the Winter 2007 issue of the Land Stewardship Letter at www.landstewardshipproject.org. That's landstewardshipproject.org. Send your comments and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also call me at 612-729-6294. 
A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and would like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening. Thank you.